All right, welcome to episode 42 of We Going In Presents. Today, our guest is Jay Zone to talk about the Do Right's latest project, Soundcheck at Six. It's a live album. So we talk about how the live album came to be for the Do-Rights, as well as Jay's drumming evolution, his migraine struggle, his father's influence on his music, the importance of making imperfect music, and, which has never been covered before, Jay's own distaste for eggs and mayo in particular. So that is a We Go On an Exclusive right there. Jay's own does not like mayonnaise. Anyway, this is a two-part interview, so check back for the second part, and we're going to get into the first one right now. Here's Jay's own. So Jay, at this point, I don't even know what number interview this is because I was I was looking through the archives and we go back to 2004 with the interviews. So always great to to get you back on the phone and do a new interview with you. Yeah, man. Uh, always uh, looking for. I, lo- I lost count. I don't even remember all the interviews. <laughs> at this point, there was so many, so many of them. But uh, yeah, man, it's constantly. Uh, Music, music evolves and everything evolves. So I guess they, um, you know, to stay on top of stuff. You know me, I don't like nostalgia. I don't like living in the past. So it's always good to have the new, uh, whatever I'm up to, you know, have a place to talk about it, which is cool. Definitely. And and what what I love about interviewing you is no matter what is going on, we always have something new to talk about. It's never you know, just like, let's revisit some old albums or let's talk about back in the day. Um, this time we're talking about Soundcheck at Six, which is the first time you've released a live album. So, you know, just thinking about this concept of a live album, you know, what was it like, you know, conceptualizing this and really making it happen? Well, uh, the idea came from, like, do was meant to be a studio outfit. Like, it's because Pablo and I play all the instruments, right? So I play drums and keys, sometimes bass. He plays guitar, bass most of the time, sometimes keys. We split the keyboard duties. Bass is like 85% him and 15% me. You know, and I play drums, he plays guitar, and then, you know, we both double up on percussion. Like, we're, we're kind of, we're multi-instrumentalists. But then there's just, obviously, there's tons of overdubbing. You know, and, and so we never even thought about doing shows and playing live. But after we, the album did well, people were like, hey, we want to see you guys live. And we're like, how? <laughs> so it's like, you know, there was no, we didn't, I'm not really a fan of using pedals and uh, samplers and shit, like, like trying to use triggers and shit like that. Like, I'm just not really, if I'm going to play live, I'm just going to play. concept albums like Gamma Ray Jones which was a soundtrack and we did a fake live album Tongue in Cheek which was, which was really listening and first album was just a regular studio album and then we got an offer to play Symphony Space which is the uh, Leonard Nimoy uh, theater in Manhattan and that's a pretty prestigious room right like it's it's, it's a pretty prestigious place and it's it's not like playing in a bar and passing around a hat. Like, it's a legit gig. And most groups are just bar bands for years, and then hopefully they break. Because I'm in other bands, and it's like you pay these, you play gigs for no money or small money, and you work your way up. So our first gig is like 
a gig with some prestige. And we're like, well, we can't turn it down, <laughs> right? So Pablo and I also play in another band called Lulu Lewis, which is a rock band. And that's him and his wife, Dylan. Like they have a, he has a group with her and he plays all the instruments and she sings, but to play live, he's got me playing drums and he's got uh, Bill Harvey playing bass and Bruce Martin playing percussion and keys. So then he was like, well, why don't we take the same concept, take the same band from the rock band and just teach those guys to do rights material. So that's what we did. You know, we, we got the offer and like, I don't know, like October, November of, of 2018 and they said hey you guys want to you know we got the valentine's day gig so we had like three months to go in and woodshed this material we did a show the show was great and then we were like well we want to capture that because like the energy was crazy and, and, and for a first show it was, it was great so then we did like a little intimate show just running the set that we had worked all hard on you know and we recorded it and that was Soundcheck at Six. <laughs> we said, hey, let's record it. And, and Pablo found this, uh, Bill, the bass player, had this raggedy old mixing board from the, the 80s. And we ran some signal through it, and it sounded fucking amazing. And we were like, we can't just let, we got to use this board for something. And, you know, we were like, well, let's, throw, let's do a little live set. And run it through this board. So Pablo like set up everything, all the sound. He's like a, an engineer, so he said he did all the sound and everything. And you know, we ran, our, we did a show, you know, ran the set, and captured it, and it was dope. For somebody who always was kind of not a fan of live performance, at least as a hip hop artist, to, you know, I love playing live now, and it was great to capture that and add something like that to my discography. You know, that's something that definitely was not in my... You don't, they don't make live rap albums, really, unless you're talking, like, Public Enemy or some shit back in the day. But, you know, in, in terms of funk, like, it's a thing. So it's cool to diversify the catalog with something like that. Definitely. And you're talking about just being a performer. What is it that makes it, you know, le makes you less anxious, I guess, being... Um, on stage drumming versus, um, you know, as a lyricist and, and, and having, um, having to, you know, hold the microphone. Well, you got to remember, I never wanted to be a rapper. Right. <laughs> I, I, I could rap. I used to, I was a, I'm a writer. You know, I, I wrote a book. I used to write articles. I'm a writer. Like I'm always going to be a writer. And that includes a songwriter. You know, so I used to like to write the songs, but the problem was I would write the songs, my name would be on the records, my face would be on the album covers, that's Jay Zone, he's the artist, okay, now we want to see you live. Anybody, any logical person will say, okay, yeah, I'm not logical. Like, I just wanted to make songs and never be seen, like, no live show, no nothing, and it just didn't work that way, so I had to, like, I was putting out, I put out music for Tumadre and... Bobito was like, well, come down and play New York and Poets Cafe. I was like, I don't, I'm a producer who, who I can write songs. Rap was kind of like a hobby. Like, you know how producers, Pete Rock would do a verse or two on each album, or Alchemist would drop a verse every now and again. That's how I saw it. You know, but it was like, well, you're the main artist. People want to see you. 
And I was just having fun with that shit, and I kind of by accident created this character. And I'm like, well, fuck, I guess if I play live, I got to play the character. And the character, yeah, some of that character was part of my real personality, but that didn't, that didn't mean that I wanted to be that all the time. And what happened was I kind of dug myself a ditch. Like my character, the Jay's own character got so outlandish, I used to have to get just have drunk to do it. I used to have to have like at least, you know, a two long, uh, long island iced teas or vodka cranberries. I used to have to get some liquor in my system to get flowing because I'd be on stage and I'd be really uncomfortable. Like I didn't want to be in character. I didn't want to be rapping. I didn't want to be in front of people. And when I got liquor in my system, I would kind of get on autopilot and just make the most of it. But you know, before the shows, I'd be shitting bricks. Like, I didn't want to do it. And then after the show, you know, I, I would get angry. I, I wouldn't want to do shows. But then when I was up there, I would, like, transform into another person, you know, and just do it. It's like a professional, like somebody who gets up and goes to work every day. I looked at it as a job, but there was really no passion in it. I just made it bearable so that I could make it look good. Like, the audience is coming to see you and, so you try to make the most of it, but that was never what I wanted to do. And, you know, I stopped performing in 2007. Like, at that point, I was like, I quit right on stage. <laughs> my, my last Jay's own rap set, I mean, I basically quit halfway through the set. So, I mean, it was, it was, you know, being a recording artist and being a performing artist go hand in hand, but... When I was younger, I was just flying by the seat of my pants. I, I wanted to be a recording artist and not a performing artist, and it doesn't work that way. But with drumming, you know, I play on the records in the studio. Eventually, I got to play live, and I know that as a musician. Like, you go out, you play live, you play in the studio, you, you do break beats, you do whatever. Like, you do, you do whatever, work for hire. Like, you know, whatever your skill is, you have to do it in front of people, and then you have to do it under the microphones and then you got to do it in the practice room so my approach to drumming is more realistic i think you know i i, I try to do it all embrace it all no doubt and and when you first you know broke in as a drummer i mean you were brand new to the scene it's not like you know you request love where you had been you know drumming on projects that you had been releasing throughout your career so you know you you were new in the scene. What was it like being new and then all these years now growing to where you and, and Pablo have a great discography built as the Do-Rights, but also like you're getting noticed and you're playing with other bands and, and touring as well? Well, in the beginning, I was a rapper-producer who played some drums. Nobody was really calling me a drummer. You know, even the other day, like somebody just said, well, you're an MC and, you know, like 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 people just haven't gotten used to it yet, you know. But in, in the beginning, it was kind of like, OK, he's Jay Zone, the rapper producer, and now he plays his own drums. And OK, but I also was a DJ and a writer and I would mix my own records and I write my own press release. I was a jack of 57,462 trades. <laughs> and. But that was part of the problem. That was like my tagline when I did Fish and Grits, like Jack of All Trades, Master of None. And I just said, look, I'm, I'm never going to become a legitimate drummer if I don't focus on drumming, which means I got to drop some shit. Like, 
we're kind of in a gig economy. Like, it's so hard to make money as an artist. You kind of have to do everything. You got to design your own websites. You got to do your social media. You got to do your, 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 you know, digital distribution. You got to write your own press releases. You got to be your own booking agent. So we all have to do the business stuff. But then on top of that, if you're the rapper, the producer, the engineer, the DJ, the, the studio music, like at some point you got to stop adding jobs because you're going to start to, it's going to start to take away you know, from, from, from what, whatever else you're doing, you know? So I think in the beginning I was doing so many things and drumming was just one of them. I think when I stripped shit away, like when I stopped releasing rap albums, when I, when my beat weren't, I wasn't making beats anymore. Like my name wasn't showing up on albums like that. I got fired from my weekly DJ residency. And instead of going out and trying to find another one, I just I just practiced that many more hours a day, and you know got hard nosed about learning how to compose music because that's my annuity. Like uh, you know the Jay Zone stuff is full of samples. I can't put that shit in a movie. <laughs> to do right, we're composing everything. So I had to go back and learn my music theory. I basically had to just strip away. I was doing like seven or eight things. And I had to strip it down to three. And I think when I got more focused, I got more opportunity because I was getting better and I had more time to devote to it. And I was available for gigs. Like, it's not like, oh, I, I got my weekly DJ gig. I can't play the drumming gig. Like, now all I'm doing is drumming gigs. So, yes, I'm available. And then over time, it was like, oh, okay, he's a drummer. You know what I'm saying? But it, 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 it was like in the beginning, I wasn't really, I didn't know any drum. I wasn't on the drumming scene because I just, I was, I wasn't a drummer. I was a hip hop producer playing drums. And now I'm a drummer. Like that's my trade, you know, and I still have a long way to go. I'm not where I want to be, but you know, I haven't made a beat in three years. I haven't kicked a rhyme in four years. I haven't done a rap show in 12 years. <laughs> so like when, when you stop doing things, certain things, other things get, you know, more potent. And, and that was a lesson I learned the last few years. Like, stop trying to do so many things and just focus. Well, and, and thinking about that, too, I mean, it, it seems like fans have noticed, too, that your drumming continues to improve. So, I mean, what does it mean to you when you start seeing comments from fans saying, like, that they're noticing? It feels great, man. It makes me really happy, you know, not only from fans, but like drumming peers, like guys I idolized and looked up to as a kid, guys I've sampled when I was a producer. Like you get, I get to know them and build a rapport and they say, man, you're getting tight, you know, or, you know, your, your swing is getting better or your feels getting better or, you know, your chops or whatever, whatever it is. It feels great, man, but it always feels great. You know, as much as we say we don't care what people think, we mean, I think most artists are sensitive to people's opinion. We don't listen to people's opinion, but we're sensitive to it. And I've been working really hard. I and, mean, you know, when you work really hard on something and somebody notices it, it's like it feels good. You know, that's, you know, it's like, you, you know, you work really hard to get to a certain point and then somebody leaves a comment on it. They do this on Instagram a lot, but, like, I could play, like, I could have a clip of me playing, you know, playing, like, in the, in the 
playing a show somewhere in a the theater or, you know, laying down a groove and everybody's like, man, you know, you're, you're putting your work in. I like what I'm in. And somebody will be like, Pimps don't pay taxes. Where's Lucy Lou? <laughs> <It's kind of laughs> like, like, you know, that, that's kind of like, you feel like you've been working real hard for people to just bring up some shit from 20 years, but you realize like they don't mean nothing by it. They're just showing their appreciation for something I did 20 years ago. And that's great. But then it's kind of like you want to, you know, it feels better when people recognize, you know, that you've been putting in work. Like it's because it, it was a lot of work. I, I, I didn't play drums as much as a kid like that. I mean, I, I really started at 34. So I've been playing eight years. I mean, a lot of six, seven-hour days <laughs> playing, a lot of, you know, mistakes, a lot of bad nights on stage, like a lot of paying dues. It was like being a producer and MC. Like, I paid those same dues. Or DJ. Like, I paid the same dues, and I'm paying them again. And when you're older paying dues, it's a little more daunting because now you're worried about health insurance. You're worried about putting money away for the future you're worried about or you know like i gotta be in bed by like midnight or i might get a migraine you know like you know your body starts breaking down and things you didn't know you had start hurting so like now all these realities of aging are kind of right there but then you have to take on the mentality of an 18 year old like you know what this is going to be a rough tour then we're going to be in some airbnbs that are kind of funky <laughs> the money isn't huge, but I have no choice. I got to get out there and, and do that shit because otherwise I'm never going to get where I got to get. So I really had to fucking humble myself to, to go out there like 40 and plus and playing and touring like a road dog touring. Like I would have toured with Hogan Al Sheed in the very beginning, like under the same circumstances. You know, you're in a band of six, seven guys, five, six guys. You know, like, you're getting way less of a cut. <laughs> Jay Zone kept all the money, or I paid Hug and She to Dick Stallion to DJ Contact, but you're not splitting shit six ways. It's, it's, so I had to get used to it, but I know I got to pay dues and I love what I'm doing. So I make the money up in other areas and then I hit the road, you know, and I'm frugal with my spending and I make a little spreadsheet and I figure out how to come home with a little money. And then the whole thing, I keep little journals and shit about each show. And, you know, to me, I, I get it. I love what I'm doing. So the bumps and bruises of paying dues as an older musician, they don't bother me, you know, because I know, A, I can't avoid it. It's necessary. And B, I love what I'm doing. And the problem is when you don't love what you're doing, that's when it becomes unbearable, <laughs> you know, but. No doubt. And, you know, I love the story you told to Blueprint about how your dad got you your first drum, your first drum kit, um, kind of as mm -hmm. a way to get you, get you, you know, to, to get started. So I know the props from, you know, other musicians or fans has to mean something, but, you know, the big question is what does Pops think about your progress and the music that you're making now? Oh, he, he loves it, man. He's he's uh he's the only but I always say he's the only person that visits my website. <laughs> like artists websites are dead, like everybody's on social media. And I could just list one show. I could add a show to like my itinerary. He'd be like, Oh, I saw you added Salt Lake City. I'm like, damn, dad, like nobody reads the fucking website. So now when I do my website I feel like I'm doing it for my dad. 
Like, I feel like I'm, you know, that's my audience for the website. And he's always been my biggest supporter. And I, I really wouldn't be here without him. You know what I'm saying? Because he's the one who told me to try to find some passion in music again. Because I was so fucking bitter after the book came out. I didn't know what I was going to do. The book, you know, Root for the Villain was a major victory. It did very well. First one of my family to get work published. It was That book was a milestone for me. But it was like, what's next? You know, and he knows from, you know, seeing me grow up and, have, you know, being around me all these years, he knows that I'm a musician. And he knew that music, you know, I have to find peace with music. And, um, you know, when I was trying to find my footing, the fact that he saw me talking about drums and bought me a little cheap drum set when he came to visit and he surprised me with it, that kind of that kind of made me say I got no choice. Like at that point, I was thirty four, so it's like you know if you're an eight year old kid and your parents buy you a drum set and then a year later you you give up on that shit and you go play football or something and the drum set sits in the basement, you're like, oh okay, he's he's a fickle eight year old kid. By the time he's twelve, he'll be into this. By the time he's fifteen, he'll be in the girl, <laughs> and he won't do none of that shit. But at 34, it's like you know, your pop bought you a drum set as a grown ass man. You better go down there and play that fucking drum set. <laughs> I Heck was yeah. like, okay. You know, I'm like, he bought me this drum set as a grown man. I felt like not a pressure, but I felt like I felt like, all right, I, this, this this has to mean something. You know what I'm saying? Like this can't go by the wayside. Like this this has to mean something. And um, I had no idea how, how crazy the road ahead was going to be. I had no way of predicting that I'd be a working, touring musician playing drums and composing. And I'd be like, I do drum stuff for hip-hop artists all the time, but like I'm not a hip-hop artist, per se. So I had no way of, I would have never guessed that shit. So when I was walking around all bitter about music, I never would have thought that 10 years later, this is where I would be, but I really owe my dad a lot of that. Like, if it wasn't for him, I don't think I'd be playing, to be honest. You know, I really don't. Well, and, and even something that had come up when we did our interview for the Chopped Herring book was just about, you know, in high school, him taking you to different studios and, and waiting, for you know, on your sessions and just, mm -hmm. you know... Um, just really being there from day one. So, um, I feel, I feel, I feel like, I feel like it's just, it's, it's gotta be a lot of great memories looking back on everything. Yeah. I mean, I just got back from visiting him in Florida the other day and we were pulling out old photos and we found a photo of uh, us in the basement and I was playing sax and he was playing drums. We had a drum set down there, but I wasn't a drummer. Like I would bang on it, but I didn't play Seriously, I, I wasn't into drums as a kid. And, you know, I posted the photo on Instagram, and it, it was just crazy. Like, at that point, my dad was younger than I am now, and I was like 10, you know? <laughs> and it's, I, I just did, like, a split photo of us and put it on social media. And it just reminds me that the entire way he's been there. And I think a lot of that is he always wanted to be, you know, he wanted to be a piano player. He played flute for a while. He played trumpet. Like he, his number one passion is music. But he always says, "I never had the patience." He would buy a trumpet, and if he didn't sound like Miles Davis in a week, 
he couldn't deal with that. You know, if he got a he got piano lesson, he wants to sound like Herbie Hancock tomorrow. He, it doesn't work that way. It's years, and and he just doesn't have the patience. So I, he always says like he's living vicariously through me, you know, and that's why he he always supported my art and my music, you know, because it's what he wanted to do, but he knows that that's not he. There's a certain level of insanity and patience that you need to be a musician, and that's something that wasn't his bag. You know, and that was my bag. Like, I have a quest for, like, knowledge, and I don't mind sitting there all day trying to figure out a drum fill. Like, it doesn't bother me. It's just the way I would go there and look for records for nine hours and then come home and make a beat. You <laughs> understand? Like, it, or, you know, going big and going to go DJ, like, I didn't mind, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's like the, the, the thirst for music is, you know, it feeds into the discipline and that that's what you need to be good at whatever it is you do. And he lived that through me, you know? So he's, everything I've done musically, he's been around, you know? That's, that's incredible. And, you know, going back to the Soundcheck at Six album, you know, how do you and Pablo go through the discography to really put together a set list that, you know, both captures, you know, all the great work you guys have done, but also has that cohesive feel so that it, you know, plays like a, a great show for the audience? That's actually a very good question because some of our more popular songs, we don't play live. <laughs> like, that's actually a good question, man, because... Cause, <clears throat> To come up with the set, like, it was a combination of, okay, which songs, you know, are singles, which songs are popular. This doesn't sound crazy, but we were like, which songs do people like on Spotify? Like, what's what, what, what's popular there? Um, then it, it was a, like, okay, we need a couple, you know, we need... Uh, the 45s are the singles, right? So it's like, okay, well, we got to take something from this. We didn't do many singles on there. We were, the only one we did was, was uh, we did Gamma Ray Funk and we did Bug Juice. So it was like, okay, we can't do all the singles. You know, Bite It was popular, but we, we, we just felt like we have a lot of songs like that. So I was like, let's do, you know, uh, two from the singles. So we did Gamma Ray Funk and we did uh, the Bug Juice. Then it was like, uh, well, Zodiac's not on the album, but when we did the show, we did Zodiac. But um, then we went through the album. It was like, okay, the Twitch had a, the only music video we have is the Twitch. And that has like the most views. So we're like, okay, we got to do the Twitch. But then it was like, uh, what could we extend into something that is good live, right? So when we were, we were jamming on The Chief and I, which isn't a single, it's just on the album. And then we realized that because of the key it's in and the way it is, we could go into a cover of Booker T and the MG's Green Onions out of that. And we didn't do it on the album because we didn't want to clear the publishing. But when we played the show, we go from that into like a cover version of Booker T and the MG's seamlessly. You know, so like we were looking at what songs are going to translate well live. Like Amsterdam Avenue is not a hit. It wasn't a single. It doesn't have a lot of Spotify plays, but it's it's the most like interesting song in our catalog. 
it, like it, it's the one song that has jazz, you know, it has Latin, it has funk. It goes through so many genres, and we're like, well, if we're playing a show, like that might be interesting for people, you know, like instead of just playing breakbeat funk all night, we need something interesting. So we pulled that as like a wild card, you know. Then we we went to the Spotify. Okay, Pookie's Dead has a lot of plays. It got a BBC play. Okay, so we'll put Pookie's Dead on there. That's a nice little groove. Man with the Golden Tooth is a word of mouther. Like, it's not popular. It wasn't a single, but a lot of people have told us, yo, I love that song. People seem to like it. <laughs> so we did it, and we made it like a go-go version. Mr. Porter is not a single. And it's not a Spotify hit, it's not popular, but that's the one that gets licensed for the most usage. The television, it, it has like a pop appeal. And we could, we could put you know, a spin on it live by adding all the percussion like we did. So you see what I'm, what I'm saying is we have, we just took like one or two from each thing, like one from the, four, the cats who buy the 45 are gonna like this. The people on Spotify are gonna like this. People who watch the music videos are like this. People who want something different, you know, we want to throw a wild card in there, so we do that. People who are into the catchy shit for licensing, we'll use that. And then we said, okay, now take some personal ones that you want to play. And, you know, Pablo picked Ghetto Ferris Wheel. I picked Showdown. And that right there is basically the set. You <laughs> understand? Like, so it was like we, we went all through our set. We didn't just take our most popular songs. Because we don't really have many quote-unquote hits. So it's like, okay, we're going to take a mixture of our most popular records, the most interesting ones to each different bass, and, you know, make sure that one thing they all have in common is that they we can we can play them live well and that they're interesting, you know. So that's how we came up with it. And Neckbones, like Neckbones is one everybody likes. I was able to do some some vocal. I was able to get the not rapping, but I was able to get on the mic and do some J Zone talking. You know, I knew this. I know there's people out there who still like to hear me talk shit. So I put that on there. <laughs> like it was just a little something for everybody. That's how we did it. No doubt you. Know, and one question I had for you. I'm glad you brought up neck bones because I did have a question. You talked about how you put the neck bones in the oatmeal, and that was the nastiest thing you'd ever had up to that point. So I guess. Right. So what, after the neck bones and the oatmeal, has been more disgusting that you've eaten? I have, like, a visceral reaction. I, I have, like, a deep hatred. As, it wasn't when I was younger, but as I got older, I developed a deep hate for mayonnaise. Mm. So it's like, so anything with mayonnaise, like, anytime I see, or a mayonnaise kind of sauce, like Thousand Island dressing, hollandaise ranch like any of those like egg-based sauces they may like i get like a puking reaction like whenever i see like i won't even eat a spicy uh sushi roll because they use spicy mayo they use mayo in the spicy when i get sushi i don't do no spicy nothing like they better keep that shit away from me <laughs> anything mayo, mayo to me is just disgusting so <laughs> you know i get i get that reaction from mayonnaise and and not, not when i was younger it started happening in my adult life <laughs> it's weird it kind of developed was that you like know? a bad so, like a bad subway or was that just like 
I yeah. think I think I think I think what it was was I, I ate a tuna fish sandwich that wasn't right. I used to love tuna fish sandwiches, and then I had one that wasn't quite right. And then I remember one day I was sitting on a bus, and this lady was eating potato salad, and you use like Miracle Whip, or, and it just it just smelled off. And like those <laughs> two experiences just fucking threw me. And like I, I developed, a, I have like a very a visceral reaction to mayonnaise. I just anything with mayonnaise, I, I can't do it. You know, so yeah, <laughs> I would say that. One thing I didn't realize till I'd seen the commercial was that you can actually use mayonnaise to like as butter if you're like grill, like making like a grilled cheese or like a, a, a toasted uh, sandwich. You know, of all the things, man, I yeah. never would have guessed mayonnaise would be would be it. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. any any any. Like I said, Thousand Island, Big Mac special sauce, ranch, hollandaise sauce, aioli. They try to trick you by using these 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 bourgeois words like aioli, like and bruschetta with a nice aioli. But like they try to act like that shit is all fancy grape poupon. Aioli is fucking mayonnaise. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> when I see aioli, I'm just like, no, don't try to get slick. Because the first time I ordered a sandwich, I was like, yo, this fucking mayonnaise. They were like, well, I was like, I didn't know what aioli was. They said garlic aioli. I thought garlic aioli was like, I like garlic. So I'm like, I thought it was like a garlic spread. Just like crushed garlic or something. And they're like, no, that's. Garlic mayonnaise. I was like, no, no. And I, I made them take that shit back. I was like, you didn't tell me it was mayonnaise. I'm not going to pay for this. And they gave me something else. <laughs> you know? so, so is vegan mayonnaise worse? It's not as bad to me. Like, I don't like any kind of mayonnaise. Like, I, I period. But, like, I do like tahini, which is kind of like looks like it. But tahini doesn't give it. But tahini tastes like what it is. It tastes like sesame seeds. Vegan mayonnaise doesn't bother me that much. It just depends on what kind of vegan mayonnaise, and it depends on what it's in. I think it's the eggs that throw me off because it's like when you when you stick a knife in a jar of mayonnaise and you cut it, it makes that sound, uh-huh. and it just that slurping. I, I, yeah, I, I think a lot of it. I, I think I'm just very, very. I don't. I don't eat eggs either, so I think a lot of it is I'm very gro- grossed out by egg yolks. I just. I, I'm like that's a fucking embryo. Like I'm not. <laughs> like I'll eat egg whites. Like I'll make egg white omelets and shit. But I think the reason I hate mayonnaise is because anything with an egg. Like if I see egg, like when people eat eggs, I distance myself because the smell of eggs makes me sick. So like. The fact that mayonnaise is made from egg yolks, that like an egg yolk is a fucking embryo. Like I'm not eating an embryo, man. Like I'm just not doing it. So, <laughs> oh, go yeah, ahead, man. Anything, with, anything but egg. Yeah, I won't even eat baked goods with egg yolk. Like I can't if I know there's egg yolks in it, I won't eat it. Because to me, it's it's a fucking embryo, man. It's gross. <laughs> yeah, what 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 I absolutely hate too is is the sound of eggs being made like that like like from um 
like whisking it to um like that boiling sound man like th- that all yeah yeah i hate the, i hate i hate hard boiled eggs i like the egg whites egg whites fine cuz egg whites are, are like tof- they egg whites don't taste like nothing egg whites taste like whatever people put egg whites in alcoholic drinks and then they turn around and make omelets or cookies or whatever egg whites have no taste so they're fine like they're they're innocuous the yolk has like a smell and you think that it's an embryo i don't like the way they look like when they whisk them up and shit like with the you know i I don't like that i don't like scrambled eggs on a plate i don't like sunny side i just do not like i have a vendetta against the egg yolk i hate it (laughs) so anything that is a product of it or anything that like and mayonnaise is like that but it's extra gross and so any of that shit is just like a no-no do you get the same reaction no, I haven't had so what haven't you had no no no, no. I just said I haven't had I haven't eaten an, I haven't eaten an egg in I haven't eaten an egg in about 30 years 30 so yeah an egg yolk like wow. a scrambled egg 30 years 1989 last time I had an egg that's crazy. So, do you get the same reaction to like other dairy, like milk or ice cream? Not ice cream, but uh, I wouldn't drink whole milk. I don't. I, I don't like. Um, in particular, about I like frozen yogurt, but then like yogurt, like you know when they use yogurt, like Greek yogurt to make sandwiches and shit. Like sometimes it just depends. You know what I mean? Like, it depends on how it smells and how it looks. Like, I'm very picky with that kind of shit. You know, like, da- dairy's kind of, I don't know. Like, I ain't going to sit up here and act like I don't eat feta cheese or, you know. Or, <laughs> but I really have, like, a weird reaction to, like, a lot of dairy stuff. But not not as bad as, as eggs. Like, I, I don't have a thing against dairy like I do against egg yolks. I just, I can't. Like I said, 1989 was the last time I had an egg yolk. That Man. was that was it. I was in seventh grade. <laughs> and you just you just decided then, you know, seventh grade J zone. Yeah, like I, I just said this is this is disgusting. And I used to eat eggs all the time for breakfast because my my grandfather would make them. And I think one time I had it, and I might have been sick already. And then when you when you're sick and you eat something it's ruined like for me like i i got like the day i recorded soundcheck at six i didn't know that i had come down with norovirus so like after we did that show i wasn't feeling well i went home i ate one of those trader i made a trader joe's omelet with egg whites and one of those um what's that thing called they, they have like that soy chorizo shit at trader joe's with like fake sausage like a soy chorizo and I'd never had it. So I was like, all right, I'll put that in the, you know, try to get extra protein. And I ate the omelet, and then that night I threw up. And when I saw it come up, I'll never eat that shit again. And it, <laughs> it wasn't bad, but I'm not, I'm not gonna, because I always associate it with being sick. <laughs> and so, like, I had I had an omelet when I was, like, 12 and got sick. And then ever since then, I've been grossed out by uh, egg yolk. Well, you know who else is grossed out by eggs is Michelle Obama, um, in her book Becoming, she talked about how 
she couldn't, you know, stand eggs for breakfast and thought it was gross. And I think it was her mom who was like, well, what are you going to do for protein then? And Michelle Obama said, you know, I can do um, PB&J because, you know, the peanut butter has protein. And ever since then, she's been having peanut butter and, and jelly. Um, I don't know. She probably doesn't have it every day now. But growing up, she was able to convince her mom to let her have a PB&J for breakfast instead of having eggs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in the morning, I either have oatmeal with protein powder in it and like peanut butter or walnuts or something, or I'll make a protein shake. And then I found protein pancake mix that is made with egg whites, not yolks. <laughs> and I get it from the vitamin shop. So like I, I rotate between pancakes, oatmeal, and protein shakes. Um and that's how I get my protein. It's it's hard. Like, I'm not a vegan. Like, I eat fish and shit like that. Like, I eat, you know. But I don't eat red meat and I don't eat eggs. So it's very difficult for me to get protein. But I'm active. I go to the gym and shit. So I have to, like, be very aware of, like, making sure I get enough protein. I get migraines when I don't eat properly. So I have to be. It, I'm a, Like, on the road, it's very difficult. Let's just say that having these weird food things like usually on the road, the whole band will just get eggs in the morning and then I'll get those oatmeals from the whole foods that you add boiling water to. <laughs> and you, you make like a cup of uh, like a fast oatmeal and I'll just have a whole suitcase full of those and just eat those. And I'll dump walnuts in it for like extra protein and put a banana in it. And that'll be my breakfast on the road, you know, but, yeah, it, it's very challenging. Like, at home is one thing, but when you go on the road, especially when you drive through states like Wyoming, <laughs> <laughs> where you drive through, you know, when you drive through, like, central Pennsylvania, you know, when you drive through states like that, like, you're not going to find a Trader Joe's. You're not going to find a Whole Foods. You're not going to find a typical supermarket. You're basically... Denny's gas stations and diners like you know and it's very difficult man <laughs> but again you know I I've learned this year I've toured a lot this year so I've learned how to uh make sure I don't lose too much weight and make sure I don't get sick it's, it's not easy though it's definitely not well and the other thing too you know you, you get you get into some kind of fitness regimen at home going on the road it's a lot harder to maintain that hard very hard man very hard and um if you tour on an upper level like if you're touring like if you're like a major act then every hotel you stay in is gonna have a gym it's just a matter of getting up early and going when you stay at an airbnb we do mostly airbnbs like we're, we're touring on a, like a lower mid-level so it's like there's airbnbs or this basic hotel you know, you're lucky if there's a treadmill in there if if you stay in a hotel. But an Airbnb, you know, when I go out on the road, I might wake up and do some push-ups. You know, but then you sit in the van for nine hours. That's not good. You can't really stretch. You know, but then again, you're not really eating that much, so you're losing weight, but then you're not in shape per se. It's, it's a weird balance, man. Like, the the road ages you, like, physically. And you have to go, you have to be uncomfortable. There's not always time to stop it. 
you know, like I said, if the whole band wants French toast and eggs and you want to buy some oatmeal from Whole Foods, you know, you might not be, and the Whole Foods are 20 miles away, then you're asked out. You know, you might just have to get some bars, like some energy bars, like, like what are those, Kind bars? They yeah. sell those at the gas station. Go to the gas station and get a gang of Kind bars or just get a bag of, get a bag of roasted nuts or something like that and a banana. You got to do that sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Because there's like five guys want one thing, you want the other. Like they're not going to make adjustments for me, you know? And that's what I always say. Like I had a history as Jay Zone, a rap artist, but when I'm in these bands, I'm just a member of the band. I'm not special. I help carry guitar amps too. <laughs> you know, we all help each other. Like everybody's equal. Like what, like whatever I did as a hip hop artist has absolutely no, it, it, there's no nepotism or any type of advantage being in these bands. It's like my, my whole job is to do my job as a musician and to contribute to the functioning of the group, you know? And people, you know, at, at the shows, they're like, oh, Jason, and the guys in my band, they didn't know about my history. Not when they met me. Nobody knew that I had a rap past. They didn't know I had a rap career. And then all of a sudden, people started coming up, and then they were le- then they started learning. Oh, you had a rap career, and hey, Jay, there's somebody out there that you know wants to know like where the old made billionaires are. And, <laughs> like people will come and shit, but you know that has you know, and it's great that people come out and check me out. I love it, but it's like it's two different things, and that's just one thing I always wanted to clarify. Like it's not like well, he's in a group, and then that's Jay Zone on drums. Like, no, I'm one of six guys trying to make this thing work, and, and we're all playing the equal part, you know? So that's what I mean. I'm, I'm, start, I'm paying all over. I'm paying new sets of dudes. This sick of being rich has nothing to do with me keeping a job. You see what I'm saying? Right. No doubt. And I know the migraines come and go for you, but when they do come, and they seem like they're pretty bad. How have you managed, you know, because – Migraines is something that I know I go through, and I think a lot of other people have to deal with them too. Like, how do you how do you deal with yours? Well, I've been suffering with migraines now, on and off for about seven years, seven and a half years. And um, the first time I ever got one, I was playing sound set in Minneapolis, not during my set, but I went back to the hotel and got this really bad headache. That was my first, and I didn't even know there were migraines. I didn't know, I didn't know that what I was getting was migraines until years later. I just, I thought they were clutch. You know how you did, you start Googling shit, looking at WebMD and all that bullshit. Oh, I got cluster headaches. Oh, I got tension headaches. Oh, I got this or that. Or, oh, it's my sinuses. Like, just, shooting in the dark trying to self-diagnose and then I started getting real bad in 2017 when I started a, a DJ residency that was a lot of stress and I would get real bad ones man and knock on what like I got lucky like I would I would get them at, at some point I would get them once a week and then I would go two months without it and then I'd get one randomly 
and I couldn't even find what my triggers were. I'm still trying. I got an MRI on Thursday of my head. I'm still trying to figure out what the triggers are and, and how to prevent them. But I got lucky. My luck ran out about a month and a half ago when I was on tour. I never, I always got migraines on days where I was just working from home or just chilling. I never got migraines on days where I had to perform until I did a Midwest tour with Ben Perani. When we played Cleveland, next day we had a Chicago. I woke up with a killer fucking migraine. And not only were we playing in Chicago the next day, it was an afternoon show, <laughs> meaning it was earlier in the day. And my migraines, when they're bad, they usually last about 14 hours. So it came on at like 1 or 2 in the morning. And I was like, well, fuck. If this shit lasts 14 hours, that puts it right in the middle of the show. Like we're playing an afternoon outdoor festival gig the next day. If it was a night show, like we're playing at 11 o'clock, like I would have been okay. I would have just gone through it. But I was like, we're, we're driving from Cleveland to Chicago, and the guys were nice enough to give me a row of seats to myself, and they all squeezed in the other rows so I could lay down. And I couldn't eat. I couldn't sit. I was dying. The one thing that saved my ass was that Chicago was an hour behind Cleveland. And that extra hour of rest, got it to a point where I could at least stand up. And I think a lot of it is just adrenaline and willpower. Like I was setting up my drums and like you guys go on in 15 minutes. There's people waiting out at the gate. They open that shit up. The shit packed up. It was like the 312 block party, which is like a big festival, a music festival in Chicago. We're the first act. We play quarter to five. So I'm just getting out the migraine. I'm feeling like shit, but I'm functional. And then once that fucking beat started, <laughs> I played through it. And and I guess I was like, okay, I guess I can play with a migraine. But it's like it's like adrenaline. It's like Isaiah Thomas, you know, dropping forty something points on the Lakers, and his ankle is all fucked up. And then when he goes back to the locker room, his ankle swells up to the size of a goddamn football. But he's out there giving it to the Lakers. You know what I'm saying? Like, you wonder, how is he doing it? Or Jordan playing with the flu. Like, that's part of being a musician. People play on the nights where they lose a loved one. They play on the nights where people would get right out of jail and play. You know what I'm saying? People would be going through divorce. They'd be going through courtship for their kids. They, they you know, they, they have some kind of ailment sickness and you know, Elvin Jones had a freaking oxygen tank tank on the bandstand at the end of his life and that just goes to show you what how powerful music is um you know if I was working in an office I'd be like go fuck yourself I'll see you tomorrow but music ain't like that man you got one opportunity to play a show there's no do-overs and that's the the blessing and the curse of music. You know, you can make amazing shit happen with sheer will and adrenaline, but there's no makeup. <laughs> like, you got five other guys depending on you. They don't get paid if I don't play. Not only me, they don't get paid. None of us get paid. So, like, that's in the back of your head. You're feeling like shit, and you got to somehow pull that shit out and play. But with that being said, I'm going to do my best to make sure I never get a migraine on the day of the show ever again. 
yeah. whatever it takes. You know, so uh, I'm I'm at the, I'm getting to the bottom of it. I'm figuring out what things help me. The neti pot has been very helpful because my sinuses I think contribute. Eating regularly, staying hydrated, sleeping, not getting stressed out—all those things help. Um, but you know, I haven't pinpointed the exact trigger. But all those things, if I stay on top of them, they make it a little easier. You know, um, yeah. You don't you don't want to get a migraine on the day of the show. <laughs> That's bad news, man. Yeah, I've 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 taught through migraines. Um... But I, I, I would, that that's a lot different, obviously, than having to do a show with all the all the musical instruments and and all the pressure there. You know, with 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 me, I could always you know keep the lights low and um, you know ha- have kind of just a chill class. Um, but also looking at like just that live show, do you guys you know if we go back to sound check at six, are there mistakes? that anyone made, you know, just in playing. And I mean, you don't have to tell me like, you know, at three. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, like, will the average person notice them? Probably not. Well, I, yeah, I, I fucked up a couple of times. And there's things you might not catch, but yeah, I fucked up. <laughs> of course. Cause you for, know, for me, I think that's the beauty of the live album though. Yeah. It's like, look, look, man, like it, it's it, it's so easy to sound perfect at this point. I don't mind them. Like if it got it gets to the point where if I'm recording in a studio with total control of my environment and I can edit anything out and I make a mistake, I'll keep it. Because it's like the music we all grew up on was imperfect because the technology hadn't gotten to the point where we could fix it. Like, look, we don't have time to recut this, man. That's just what it is. And not only did it make you better at playing under pressure, knowing that you can't lean on the technology, but it left some candor and some human feel to the music. And some of my favorite moments on record or on tape are mistakes. You know? And it's like, that's, you know... That's a big part of it. And we didn't do it, nothing egregious. But, you know, I, I fudged a fill or two. You know, like, I rushed a note here or there. You know what I'm saying? Like, or even something where it doesn't sound like a mistake, like it doesn't sound wrong, but it wasn't, it didn't come out the way I wanted it to. Mm. Let's just say that. Like, there's, there's things that I, that I had rehearsed it a whole bunch, thousands of times. Like, this is how I'm going to do it. And in the moment, I was just in the moment. I was just playing to the moment, and, you know, there's a little bit of nerves, obviously. So then you play it, and it doesn't come out wrong, but it doesn't come out in that bombastic way that you wanted to. And you're like, fuck, I could have done that better. But, you, but it's done. It's a take. You can't go, you, you don't make the whole band go back. And You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, my drum fill could have been more epic, and I just did a typical do 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 like, I could have made that way funkier, but I wasn't. But that's the beauty of it. In the moment, I felt like doing a single, a simple drum fill. So I did one, even though I could have done something more interesting. Now you're overthinking it. In the studio, you can go back and punch in a, a more elaborate fill. But when you're playing live, like, you're, you're getting the energy of the time and the place that will never be duplicated again. 
and you have to just roll with it and embrace it. It's not, you know, it's not the, the greatest chops. It's not, you know, us at our technical best, but it is us, you know, at our most natural and having fun and, you know, our, our discussions that we have as musicians, like, a, you know, a song, a, you know, playing music is like a conversation. Like we're talking with each other and what I say today might be different than what I say tomorrow. That's the beauty of the live show. Like, unless you're playing pop music where the singer needs to, you got to be on a click track. The singer needs you to, you know, the singer needs you to play that drum fill the same way every night. You know, there's a beauty in that too. That's an art, like being being a being a precisionist. But in, in terms of what we're doing, we're we're never gonna play the same thing the same way. You know, there are songs that are what like Amsterdam Avenue is way slower live than it is on the album. Like, cause we felt like playing slow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like some some of the songs are on the album are are faster than they are on you know, on the live album or faster live than they are, you know, recorded. Like at the end of Pookie's Dead, I start slowing down the tempo. I felt like the song should like kind of slow to a crawl, but you know, the metronome mafia, if you're like, yeah, Yo, you dropped your tempo. I was like, well, I kind of did it because I felt like the song should kind of lose a little steam and then peter out. But it's not like that on the album. On the on the studio album, you see what I'm saying? So like, but that, but I wasn't thinking. Ooh, I'm gonna slow the tempo. Watch. It was like I was playing it, like I was playing it, and then I realized I'm dragging a little. But then I was like, ah, it. I feel like dragging right now. <laughs> like, so that, that's the beauty of of live music. It, it's, it's totally unique. You're never gonna hear that again. Like in terms, like that particular combination of performances. You're never going to feel that. And I also was coming down with norovirus. So, like, I was feeling a little sick. So that, that you know, it also, you know, it, it affects you in different ways. You know, it, 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 you feel like shit, so you might not have a lot of energy, but then you also are hyper-focused. So, like, you know, I was a little more, at the end of the set, like, I got more precise. Because I was like, all right, I know I'm starting to slip, so I better really pay attention to what I'm doing. And I, it actually made me play tighter, you know, but I didn't have the power that I had earlier in the set. Like, I was literally, by the minute, getting sicker and sicker as the album was going on. By the time we got to Gamma and Funk, I was dead, you know. So that's just, go back and listen to that thing, you know, 30 years later, I could be like, yeah, I remember I had norovirus, and then I went home and made that soy chorizo omelet, puked it, and... Utah Jazz were playing on TV, and yeah. <laughs> and then I went on tour. I went on tour a week later, you know, uh, to LA, you know, with with Ben Perani. You know, like all the all the memory, the music is just kind of like a bookmark for the memory. So, yeah, there's there's mistakes in there, and we wouldn't we wouldn't we could have edited them out, but we didn't because then it wouldn't be live, right? I appreciate so, that. 